Turn with me to the book of 1 John. 1 John, as we proceed through the Bible. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We want to get you one because you're going to want to follow along. Uh, So here's one right here. Uh, Get a Bible. You're going to want to follow along. 1 John's almost to the back of the book. No shame in looking at the table of contents. You know you have to do it when somebody asks you to look up a minor prophet, so why not just do it, right? Yes, we all have to. Where are those minor prophets again? Lamentations, man. Lamentations. We need to know where Lamentations is, right? Table of contents. It's okay. Uh, But turn with me to the uh, first uh, chapter of the first epistle of John. Now, don't get confused, John wrote three, or excuse me, John wrote five books in the Bible. He wrote five books in the Bible. He wrote one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then he wrote three letters, even I can remember them, because it's 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. That's pretty easy. And they're in the back of the book, close to this book called Revelation, which John also wrote. So he wrote five books of the Bible. He was one of the 12 apostles. In fact, write this down, he was the oldest living one. He lived the longest. And he wrote the book of Revelation out on an island off of Turkey called Patmos. And Church history goes like this. You won't find it in the Bible, but you remember when uh, at the cross Jesus committed his mother unto John, basically said, take care of her, would you please? John took care of Mary. So church history is that John lived in Jerusalem until the temple was destroyed. And if you've been following along on Wednesday nights, you're going to know that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D., At which time or so, they don't know exactly, John moved to Ephesus. Ephesus is in Turkey. It's one of the places in which he writes his letters to the seven churches, right? It's that church that was thriving and settled in the book of Acts by Paul and others as a big church, and it was thriving And remember, Jesus wrote, if you're following along, I see some of you out there uh, on Wednesdays. You might be following along on Facebook or YouTube. Uh, But Jesus wrote the first of his seven letters to this church, and he said, man, you're such a great church. You do these things are so good. But but watch it, because as time wanes here, you've begun to lose your first love. Remember that? And so... Also, in the book of Acts, chapter 20, I believe, but that's coming out of memory, so my memory sometimes isn't so great. As Paul was leaving Ephesus, having established the church, do you remember what he said? I think it's in verse 29, but again, I could be wrong. He said something like this. He said, be careful when I leave because ravenous wolves are going to come in and distort the gospel that I've planted here. I'm paraphrasing there, but that was it, right? So that, uh, that, that was by Paul. John now goes and lives at, in the city with the church, 
By the way, as we discussed on Wednesday, they probably didn't have a big building. So when he says the church in Ephesus, he means scattered all around the city in homes, meeting. That's the church, the body of Christ in Ephesus. So he lived there and worked there, and this is an old letter, and people don't know exactly what year, you know, um, Revelation written around 96 or so A.D., uh, in my Bible here, it says that 1 John was written in 96 A.D. Some scholars believe it was written as early as 85 A.D. before he went to Patmos. Some people believe after he went to Patmos. But don't concern yourself so much with that. It's an uh, unusual letter, and it doesn't really have a greeting like the rest of the letters in the New Testament have or a, uh, a farewell at the end. But you unmistakably are going to see the heart of a pastor come through, just leap off the page to all of you about a church and a people that he cares so deeply about. Now listen, I got this book uh, last week. It's called uh, Writing for Life and Ministry. It's a little book, that's good, uh, by a fellow that helps write uh, for the Gospel Coalition and uh, he talks to pastors about not being scared to write. Actually, get things on paper and write. And uh, some have said in that movement that if you're going to um, completely, or I don't know if completely is the right word, but really ingrain yourself in the culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ, then write and get it on your website and publish and, and make sure people can read and have content that's biblical. And so they put a big emphasis on it. So I, I got the book. And one of the things that struck me right in the beginning of the book is uh, not uh, um, uh, how do I get a novel written or how do I write the article but, uh, or how do I get a lot of people to see what I write. That's kind of the things that kind of go through your head as you're, you're thinking of these things. No, they say here uh, in, uh, at the beginning of the book, the most important thing for you to do before you begin writing, to be uh, not scared to write, is to find out who you are really and why you want to write. And then the second part, who you are writing for ultimately and what do you want to do for them. And i got to tell you something. I was reading this, and it came to me. My goodness. <laughs> John knew. All the way back in 96 AD, or whatever time he wrote this book, or this letter, he knew the principles of good writing by the Holy Spirit. John knew who he was, and the reason he knew who he was, or is, is because he knew the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, listen now, folks. The most important thing for your whole life, listen, listen, is who you say Jesus is. It's not your career. It's not being a lawyer. I'm picking on lawyers because I'm one. It's not being a doctor. Those are good things. Do it. Go for it. It's not even your relationships, although relationships are important. Sure they are, of course. It's not how much money you have or the kingdom you build. It's who you say Jesus is to you. 
You might be sitting here in gloom and despair, and I'm not patting you on the head and say, get over it. Or you might be sitting here and you've never really come face to face with the claims of Christ. Well, see, here's the thing. John knew who he was, and he wrote to you for a specific purpose. And here are the purposes. He he just tells you. The first one is in chapter 1, verse 3. Listen to this one. That you may have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's in chapter 1, verse 3. He tells you. The purpose for His writing is that you would have fellowship. Write that down or think about it. Sink in. Relax. The second purpose is found in chapter 1, verse 4. These things we write to you that you're, oh man, wait a minute, hold on. I might be coming to somebody's neighborhood right here. That your joy may be full. If you're sitting here today, listen, if you're sitting here today and you're overcome, you're burdened, you have strife in your life. The Lord promised you his joy, but there are things that have to happen first, and that's being reconciled back to the Father. We'll talk about that in a minute. Here's a third purpose. It's found in chapter 2, verse 1. It also gives you uh, here who he's writing to. He's writing to his little children, which suggests he was older, and he's writing to younger Christians, which basically everybody would be at that point. He says in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Hmm. There's something about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we'll find out, that gives you power over sin. How about this one in chapter 2, verse 26? He writes these things. He's writing this letter so that you won't be deceived, either with your own sin or by false teachers. Folks, in the church that stand up here in a pulpit, that have fancy clothes on or maybe not fancy clothes, there are false prophets in the church, and they can lead you astray. And here, John was combating False teaching, I'm going to tell it, tell it to you, and you can see it in the writings. If you don't understand the false teaching he was combating, you'll never understand this letter, and it's applicable for you today. Here, here's the last one. There's probably more than this, but here's the last one. John's writing a specific purpose to you and to me, and it's this one in 5.13, and this is the glorious one. If you hear nothing else today, hear this. The purpose of writing this letter in 513, he says, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. In other words, he wanted people who didn't know whether they were saved or not saved. He wanted people who didn't know if they had eternal life or not. He wanted people to have assurance of salvation and to continue in it. And he writes it right there for you. It's the most important question you'll ever face. If you find yourself here today, maybe you even come here begrudgingly. Somebody invited you and you're like, "Eh, I don't know. I got other problems on my plate. 
guess what? The Lord brought you here because you have one problem that's a bigger problem than all the rest. And I'm going to show it to you real quick in the second chapter of Mark. I want you to lodge this in the back of your mind. Move to the second chapter of Mark. If you can follow along in the Bible, this will bless your socks off. If you're sitting here and you say, well, I don't have any problems, well, the Lord Jesus says you do. There's this interesting story in the second chapter of Mark. Interesting isn't good enough. It's such a blessed, high and holy story. Of course it is, because Jesus performed it. It's told about him. And it says this in verse 1 of the second chapter of Mark. Hold on now. Here comes the one thing or the most important thing about you. You have a problem, and some people are walking around in America and the whole world, and they don't even know it. And here comes the problem. Here it is. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them, and then they came to him. Wow, this guy was preaching. And we know from Luke 4, he preached with such such grace that people marveled at him. And they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. Can you imagine? Four friends see a guy who can't move. He's paralyzed. And they actually take him over to this house that Jesus was at. Well, anyway, they take him to this house, right? Because look look at this, folks. The friends think that the the worst thing about the man is that he's paralyzed. And it is bad. No one wants that. That's tough stuff. And they carried him. What great friends. They go, oh, Lord, my friend, he's paralyzed. And when they couldn't come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered, can you imagine what great friends? They go up to the roof, the flat roof there with the, you know, the leaves over top or whatever, they, and they uncover the roof. Can you imagine what you were thinking if you were the owner of the house? What's going on here, man? They uncover the roof, these great friends, and they're so happy because they're going to lower him down. They'd broken through. They let him hit down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. They probably just were like, yes, we got in to see him. This is so fantastic. Jesus Christ, the one who's preaching these things and the one can heal. And I know it now. This is my friend. He's paralyzed. And they lower him down. And when Jesus saw their faith, he healed him. No, he didn't heal him yet. He actually did heal him. But he didn't even know it. Look at this. He said, son, your sins are forgiven you. What a curious thing to say. You see, because as people, we believe there are all these things that are hurting us. And of course, paralysis is a rough thing. But you know what? Some of you sitting here are thinking your marriage has gone awry, and that's the worst thing about you. Or your uh, job went in the tank, and that's the worst thing that's happening, this circumstance. Or, or, or you know, your, uh, a friend backstabbed you, or, or you, know, a heal, you know, some sickness or whatever. And Jesus, without really uh, rebuking the guy or the friends, he's more, he loves it. Oh, praise the Lord, you brought him to me. Thank you for coming. You brought him to me. You, he says it, but he doesn't really say it. He says, you've got a worse problem than your paralysis. 
You've got a worse problem than your marriage. You've got a worse problem than that sickness. You've got a worse problem than that relationship. You've got a worse problem than the backstabbing. You've got a problem, and the problem is sin separates you from God. And so Jesus healed the man spiritually. You see that? Which says something about who Jesus is. The Bible tells us that only God can forgive sins. Let that sink in for a minute. Jesus was one to be able to forgive sins. He was announcing to these people, I'm the Messiah, I'm God. And some of the scribes were sitting there and said, what? You know, and they understood. The, the religious people were like, whoa. Look what that guy just claimed. And they got mad. Remember that? Okay, why did I take you there? Because John, 1 John, we're actually in 1 John, not Mark is going to address all of those issues. He's going to address all of these issues. Listen to this. A.W. Tozer, I've quoted this in here before. Some of you have liked it. Some of you might not have. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Interestingly enough, C.S. Lewis took issue with it. I don't know if he took issue with Tozer's quote, but maybe some other people had said it. C.S. Lewis said uh, in in, uh, his book, The Weight of Glory, which would have been before A.W. Tozer, so he couldn't have been combating Tozer, right? Uh, uh, I read in a, a magazine or a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it's not. What's important is how God thinks of us. That's not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is no importance except insofar is is related to how he thinks of us. So catch it. C.S. Lewis and A.W. Tozer are saying the exact same thing. You know why? Because the Bible, listen to this. When you read the Bible, you just start out in Genesis. You know what Genesis forces you to do? Look at yourself. You start reading the book of Genesis and, you're, you, you know, if you're new to the Bible, you're like, oh, great, we'll read about all these holy people. And you just get, you get to chapter 3, page 3, and you go, oh, my goodness, dysfunction in the highest form, brother murders brother. Sin. And sin permeates that whole thing and all the dysfunction, and you come face to face with a holy God that created man, man rebelled against God, and right comes into your face as a, as a fact that you must know, is that you were born into sin also. Romans 5. Romans 5. You were born into sin. You now, the Bible tells us that you were born into sin, and that sin came through the Adamic Adam nature unto all of us. We're all guilty because we've fallen short of the glory of God. Now, stick that away. It is true that what we think about God is of primary importance, but it's also equally important what God thinks about you. And you're going to see it here in 1 John. Look at this. I'm going to read uh, 10 verses, because that's how many is in the first chapter. And then we'll pray. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, 
That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. People need joy. Boy, I need joy. This is the message, verse 5, that we, which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness of all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Wow. Pretty blunt, huh? Let's pray. Lord, thanks. We need your help here to understand what you're telling us. I pray for a move of the Holy Spirit here as we examine this letter and see how it impacts us. Lord, first of all, though, we want to see how you are glory or deserve glory and honor and blessing because you are the one worthy to be glorified and blessed and honored. <laughs> and yet, Lord, uh, help us to see who you are in the right way and then who we are in response. We need your help, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just let me remind you who this is if you're new to the Bible. This isn't John the Baptist. John the Baptist was related to Jesus. This isn't that John. This is one of the 12 disciples. His name was John, and he had a brother named James. You remember that? And they were fisher people. They, they had a fishing business, and you can read about this in the gospel. And they teamed up with a guy named Peter, who we just got done reading his epistle. So John has a brother, James, and there's a guy named Peter, and they're fishermen. And this is the same G, or John who called himself in his writings, in the Gospel of John, he called himself the Beloved. At first glance, you kind of laughed like, oh, you're the loved one, the one that Jesus loved. No, that's not the point he's making. The point he's making is that he knows he was loved by God. And you can know it too, is why he's writing. He knows he was loved by God, but it didn't start out so rosy. He's actually with his brother called a son of thunder in the Gospels, which means, folks, he probably had an anger management problem. That's what we would call it today. And in fact, you see it in the, the Gospels uh, uh, when uh, they want to call down fire upon a town because they didn't respond in the right way. They want to take away kids who come to the, the Lord because they think they're bothering uh, the Lord. Uh, and he uh, says, you know, as Jesus, this is the one. This is the one. This is so American. This is so human nature. Jesus there is expounding on why he must suffer and die and rise again. And instead of listening to the teaching, him and his brother get in this little spat. Hmm. You know, I wonder when he says he's going to establish his kingdom, if we'll be able to sit on his right hand, the position of power. I wonder if we can be cabinet members, in other words. That's who this one was. 
Let us sit on the right and left in the kingdom. And, and you know, uh, it's so typical. We, we, we see opportunity, and Lord says, I just want you to rest in me. Uh, we see avoidance of, comf- uh, of, of suffering and, and uh, run to comfort. The Lord says, no, before the crown is the suffering. It's so perfect. And yet, here he does, or here he is, he walks and talks uh, with Jesus over this three-year period after he's been called. He was part of that inner circle, so to speak, Peter, James, and John, who got to go with Jesus to heal Jairus' daughter. He got to go uh, to the Mount of Transfiguration and see Jesus his glory shine forth. He got to go deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember that? He was part of that privileged group. And he writes this book, and he's fighting this. Now listen, if you'll hold on with me for about two more minutes, you're going to understand this book better than 99.999999% of the people who read this book, because here's why. Because as the church... Had Jesus died and rose again, you know, around 30 A.D., I understand it might not be 30 A.D., but I'm just giving you a time frame. Now, uh, uh, you know, the church is spreading like wildfire. There's persecution some, and uh, uh, the apostolic age is, is coming about. The, the, the temple in Jerusalem is, is uh, fallen, and these uh, 12 apostles have delivered this gospel. And now, as I told you in uh, uh, Acts 20, Paul said, wait a minute, hold on. Jude says, keep this gospel pure. Watch out for ravenous wolves who are going to come in and distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what happened. This group called the Gnostics. The Gnostics. Guess what Gnostic means in the Greek? To know. Even I know that. I took Spanish. Conosco, right? That's the only word I think I remember from Spanish. But anyway, uh, Conosco. To know, to know. Gnostic, to know. And what Gnostics believe, just in a little sliver here, listen to this. Some of us still believe this. How do I know the way we talk about sex and things like that? Some people believe sex is evil and dirty. It's not. Bible says, listen, well, excuse me, the Gnostics said this, that everything that was spiritual about a person was good. And everything that was physical about a person was evil. And it led to a separation even within the schools of thought. They said, well, wow, if that's true, if that really is true, there, uh, we could go one of two ways. We could be aesthetics in which we could beat our bodies into submission. You know the stories in the medieval ages where they would take the, uh, the, the whips and whip themselves because the body was evil. Remember that? Or they'd walk on stuff or heat themselves up or whatever. They punished the body because it was evil. That's one way a person could go with Gnosticism. The other way a person could go with Gnosticism also is insidious. They'd say, well, wow, if the spiritual is the only thing spiritual and the body is not spiritual, well, let's live like hell now and God will forgive us in the spiritual realm. And so we'll just partake of anything. Anything goes. Sex, drugs, rock and roll. But you get what I'm saying. We'll do anything because that doesn't matter. That's evil. And you're saying to yourself, well, okay, get past that because it doesn't really matter to me. Well, it does matter to you. It does matter to you in the biggest of ways. And I'm going to show show you this. It matters to you because Jesus was fully God and fully man. He had to be. I'll show you the scripture here in a little bit. 
But Gnostics would then uh, get into this spiritual elitism. Not only were there two schools of thought about what Gnostic meant for me, the spiritual, uh, beat my body versus do anything I want with my body. Those were the two schools of thought. But there was this also this divide in this way. They thought that only this was a special knowledge that only came to certain spiritual people. And so, you know, the guy who might be standing up here would kind of say, you know, I'm completely enlightened, and look at you people. And so there was this class uh, distinction that separated people between the truly enlightened and the ones that never could or did become enlightened. And so the ones who uh, couldn't or didn't become enlightened, they were just uh, you know, no, fodder for, for whatever because they were never going to get past the evil. You get it? But we, oh, we, we've got this special knowledge, and man, we live according to that knowledge. And it would create this great big separation within the church. Do you see it? And it was really tough and really bad. In fact, it seeped into these kinds of things. It it, it seeped into these kind of things. There was this um, uh, thought that Jesus then, you see how how what you think about God and your theology matters? It seeped into the church that Jesus then, Jesus, was not really a body. That he was some sort of just kind of, he was spiritual in nature, but that thing that you saw that he walked with and talked with, it was really like an apparition. It wasn't really a body. It wasn't really a body. There were also people uh, that came into the church, they came into the church, and they said, uh, oh, listen, listen, what hap- Jesus was just human, but when he got up on the cross, God sent his spirit or his deity to Jesus, but before he suffered too much, he removed it and he died uh, as a man. And in fact, that strain of thought was a, by a guy named Clementius or something like that, and history says that John the writer of this book, and that guy, Clementius, I might be pronouncing that wrong, were bitter enemies. They were enemies because John, as a pastor, knew that was devastating. Why is it so devastating? Because, see, the atonement, folks, what's the atonement? Listen, I know I'm getting in the weeds, but I promise you I'm not getting in the weeds. This has everything to do with your life now. The atonement. What's the atonement? Well, the Bible says that you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. And the Bible also says that God must punish sin. And what happened at the cross was the atonement. Was the atonement. What's the atonement? It's a sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God. A sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God or satisfies the wrath of God so that God's free to release his grace and mercy. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, I ain't saying it, the Bible says it, that for those who are outside of Christ, who aren't counting on the finished work of Jesus Christ for their salvation, they're children of wrath. 
That's what the Bible says, not me. You, you, you could be, uh, you know, give $75 million a year to malaria research. But if you've never, uh, you could help old ladies across the street. You could go paint for people. You could uh, help at the homeless kitchen. You could come to church every day of your life. But if you're not counting on the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross and his resurrection, the Bible says we're children of wrath. When we surrender our lives to Christ, John, not First John, John says that to those who receive Christ, to them he gives the right to become children of God. And when you surrender your life to Christ, you go from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what the Bible tells you. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because these are the things that John knows. And they're really important to him. And from a shepherd's heart, he says this. I want you, he doesn't say this, but he does say this. He goes, I want you to have a right understanding of who Jesus, who the Father, and who the Holy Spirit are. (laughs) We believe in one God in three persons. One God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We believe in one God. Three persons. And here he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Oh, by the way. See, I didn't go, go and tell you. So the atonement, see... It had to be a man who paid the price for men. A a, a bull can't take away the sins for man's sin issue. It had to be a human. He was actually born out of a mother's womb. But it also had uh, the, the perfect sacrifice that would appease or satisfy the wrath of God, which releases his grace and mercy in your life. Listen, it also had to be God. Because it had to be the perfect sacrifice without blemish or spot. So here you go. You have, and so here, God says this. He never said it like I would say it, but he, here's what was going on. I have to satisfy my justice, but I love them. I have to satisfy justice because my wrath must be poured out on sin, but I love them. So how do I do it? He didn't do this. I'm doing that. He said, oh, I'll send my son to die for them. Fully man, fully God. He takes the hand of man, Jesus does, and places it into the hand of God by his blood, by his death. And John is combating all of this, and he says, that which, look at this. Who, who, who picked this song, man? That which we have heard, because we have ears to hear. I listened today. That which we have heard, you understand what Paul said? He said, no, 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 this was no ghost. This is what I heard. I was with him. I heard him. I've seen him with my eyes. This ain't no ghost. Not only that, I've touched him. We've handled him. We've looked upon and our hands have handled. And then he says this. He was a man, he's telling you. I touched him. I heard him. I saw him. I know. But he was also the word of life. The word of life. Now, I want you to go somewhere with me, because you all know it, but I'll take you there so you can see it. Go to the first verse of the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, first verse. Oh, somebody's going to get on me today about jumping around. I know it. I know it. 
there are going to be some people on Facebook who are all over me about this. You can almost say it verbatim. Hang in there now. Hang in there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So listen to this, folks. Who's the Word? Well, it tells you later that it's Jesus, but if you didn't believe me, you'd go to the first verse of the Bible. (laughs) Oh, man, I am going to get in trouble. I'm jumping around. I know. The first verse of the Bible is so hard to find. I know. In the beginning, God, that's Father, created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God, person number two, one God and three persons, was hovering over the face of the water. Then God, say it, said with a word. Right there in the first three verses of the Bible, you see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Later on, we see in the book of Revelation, so from beginning to end, when Jesus comes back, he has something stamped on his thigh. You can decide if it's a tattoo or not. And it says, he's the word of God. He's the word. He's the word of God. It tells us that he's the word of God. So when you look in John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. Listen to this. One God and three persons in the beginning. When the beginning started, God lives outside time of space. Catch it. When the beginning started, the word was already there because he's eternal. Jesus Christ is eternal. Not only was he there, he was with God. There was this distinction. One God in three persons. There was one God in three persons, right? You know that. Okay, so what else? And the Word was God. He is God. Isn't that amazing? In other words, what John is telling you, by the way, what word do they use? You're going to want to know this. In John 1, 1 there, logos, lagos. So, listen, it's so, it's so amazing what John does in 1-1 and also 1 John 1. Guess what he's doing? He's speaking to the whole Greek world and the whole Jewish world. Why? Because the Jews believed that God would be revealed through his word. And the Greeks would debate that there was this thing, this logic at this core of the universe called the logos that made everything have meaning. And John uses that word right here to say, hey, all the world, here's the one. It's Jesus. So go back to 1 John 1.1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. He's combating Gnosticism, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled. I've touched him. I've seen him concerning the word of life. He wants to tell us that this life was manifested, came forth. And in fact, in John 1 again, in verse 14, it said that this life, the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled. That's a tent that they used in the Old Testament. In other words, he said, God came and lived with us. (laughs) That's the one I'm talking about here. Fully God, fully man. Because Gnosticism has creeped in. And it's made you divide. And it's made you unloving. 
and it's made you spiritually superior and arrogant, and you've got a wrong thinking of God, and when you have wrong thinking of God, these things start to happen. I'm superior. Boy, that's a sermon for today. It doesn't matter what side of the tracks we've been on or are on, our socioeconomic status, the color of our skin. Uh, uh, it doesn't matter anything. We're all equal in Jesus Christ. And all humans, the Bible tells us, deserve dignity and respect because they're made in the image and likeness of God. How dare us feel superior to people? We ought to be serving people. So, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've handled, that life was manifested. He came and tabernacled among us, and we've seen, and we bear witness, and we declare to you that eternal life, eternal life, which was with the Father. Listen, eternal life. This one called the Word is the one he equates eternal life with. In fact, if you read in the book of John, you go to places like John 5, 26. It says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Life. John, uh, Jesus said in John six forty eight, I am the bread of life. In John eleven twenty five, when his friend had died and he was concerned about his friend's two sisters who were also his friend, Jesus said this to one of the sisters. I, by the way, Jesus cried and was sad. So he felt the pain of the death because he was sad for the people. They were sad. But then he said something that's more true than the nose on your face. He said, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die physically, shall live. That's the most true thing. Jesus, well, I guess I shouldn't say it that way. Jesus is the true thing, and he is the resurrection and the life. And though you may die, he shall live. You understand why Christians are so fanatical in the right way of telling people the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel of Jesus Christ. What should it be doing? It should be having us share with people. It should be having us pray for people. Man, our prayer meetings should be filled up. Praying for people we know and love, and even people we don't love, we do love them. But enemies, you know what I'm saying. We should be praying for people. Because here's why. The one who came that we bear witness to, he has eternal life, which was with the Father. Which was with the Father. And was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. Koinonia, that's the word for koinonia. Catch me now. Check this. You're built for fellowship. My wife and I went walking last night right at dusk, okay? Right at dusk. It was really hot. So we went walking at dusk in South Park. And whether, folks, don't shoot me an email about social distancing. These people were social distancing. But there were people, families, I'd never seen this before. 
sitting up at the top of hills on their blankets because they just wanted to be outside and talk to somebody. I'd, I'd never really seen that before, and I've been over there a lot. People crave fellowship. People crave fellowship. It's built into us, and he says, but you see, the best and greatest fellowship is Christian fellowship. You say, well, is that exclusive or what? No, no, no. Here, here's why. Here's why. You must understand something. It's because the glory of God resides in each one of us. The life of Christ resides in a person who's counting on the finished work of Jesus Christ, which means the life of Christ is literally... <laughs> Literally might not be, but, but it is. It's real. The life of Christ is pulsing in and out of our lives. And when we come together with another person who loves the Lord and has surrendered their, her or his life to the Lord, guess what? Like this. Fellowship. God designed it so. And John here says, if you have right thinking about God, by the way, what do a lot of cults do who have incorrect thinking about who Jesus Christ do? They separate themselves from the body of Christ. They get by themselves because they have the secret formula to something. And they're the, if you hear this, run, man. If you hear this one, run. We're the true church. What do you mean you're the true church? There's, read it in the Bible. It's the life of Christ in and out of his people. And then th when this happens, we come together in fellowship. If somebody separates from the body of Christ, oh, red flag, but we have fellowship with each other. Koinonia, it means common sharing. We share things. I don't see anybody in here. It's so weird. That works with me. See, that's how the world does things. Well, we were around each other. We like eat the same things. There's a lot of you people who like nothing I like. Sports, for one. Or maybe you do. You know what I'm saying. But I don't like the stuff you like personally. But I love you and you love me. Because we have the life of Christ. He says, we declare to you that you also would have fellowship with us. It's so beautiful. He knows that if you think right about God, that you're a sinner and that you need a Savior and you uh, surrender your life to Christ and you're counting on the finished work of Jesus Christ, he knows, 2 Corinthians 5.17, that you'll become a new creation in Christ, which means you have the very life of Christ in you, Galatians 2.20. And if that happens, you're going to be serving and loving the Lord and what will be inevitable is that you'll want to come together in fellowship fellowship with us and truly our fellowship see he says it is with the father and his son Jesus Christ that's almost too staggering a sentence to almost if I wasn't a Christian I'm not sure I'd believe it you and I and we can have fellowship with the creator of all this You ever been to the ocean? <laughs> you ever looked out there and said, how in the world do those waves know when to come in and out? Or you ever been in a mountain and seen the beauty? Or whatever. You ever thought about the human eye or the human heart and how intricately it's designed or your DNA or anything like that? That one, 
the one that's so big, he's out there and created a billion galaxies, loves you. And you can have fellowship with him. Fellowship with him. See, you don't, haven't physically touched the Lord, but Jesus said to all of us, come unto me and I'll give you rest. If you're weary or heavy laden, come unto me, I'll give you rest. And when you come, listen to this, it's so beautiful. You might be thinking that your paralysis is the biggest issue about you, or your job, or your bad temper, <laughs> or your addiction, or whatever. And Jesus says, wait a minute, before we get to all that, Let's deal with your sin. And then, fellowship with the Father. And then he says this, these things we write to you that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. Look, check this out. In John, the, the Gospel of John, in 1511, in three successive chapters, he deals with joy. Who here wants joy in their life? Oh my gosh, only like one quarter of you. That's so weird. That's so weird. I never heard anybody say no to that one. These things, he says in John 15, 11, I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What was he talking about in John 15? Abiding in him. If you abide in me, your joy is going to be full. How about this? John 16, 14. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus said that. And then he goes and prays for his disciples, the followers of Christ for all time. And he says, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He's speaking to God and he says, Lord, I pray that they'd have them joy in themselves. This blows me away. Guess what the word for joy is? Kara. Not Kara, but, good, but you are joyful, and she is joyful. It's actually with an H in there. They stuck an H in there on you. C-H-A-R-A. Kara means joy. It means gladness. How about this one? If you go and look up the New Testament word for grace... It's charis, C-H-R-A-R-I-S. Grace is a gift from God. That word charis means that which affords joy or pleasure. Do you understand what I'm trying to get? When you discover the grace of God, you get the joy of God. (laughs) Oh, I thought I'd get a better reception than that. that. That's so amazing. See, some of you aren't joyful because you don't know about grace. Some of you aren't joyful because you think your problem is your paralysis or your addiction or your money or your relationships or your marriage or whatever it is or your kids. And those are issues, but Jesus has something better for you first. And that is that he would bring you back to the Father by forgiving you of your sins, but he isn't going to force you to do it. You must surrender your life to Christ. (laughs) He says, in these things we write to you that your joy may be full. See, if you want the joy, here's what we do in America. We don't take the time to surrender our lives to Christ, but we say, God, give me joy. And then when God doesn't give us joy because we're not in the family of God, we're like down on God. (laughs) 
But the joy comes in the morning. Remember that scripture? Guess what Revelation 22 says, uh, Jesus says his name is. He's the bright and morning star. It's all about Jesus, folks. He is the one that brings you back. Now, wait a minute. He then goes on and says, this is the message which we've heard from him, verse 5. In other words, this is not based on hearsay evidence. You know what hearsay is? Something's not admissible in court when a witness says, she said that Tim ran the red light. That's hearsay. But if the witness said, I saw Tim uh, run the red light, that's admissible evidence because they experienced it themselves. But if she said, she said, Tim read the uh, uh, red light, it wouldn't be admissible evidence because the defense attorney said, well, I don't want you to say it. Bring she in here, and I'll question her about whether he get it. And here, John knows. He's saying, listen, we got it from him. You can rely upon this because we got it from him. This is the message which we've heard from him and declare to you, that God is light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He said he was the light of the world. I am the light of the world. And he also tells us that we're the light of the world in that we reflect the life of the sun. But in God, or God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is light. He exposes everything. Sin. Then we surrender our lives to Christ, and we have a life that wants to please and pursue him and obey him in things, all of that whole picture, all that whole thing that God asks us to do there is light. That's light. It's walking in the light. And in him is no darkness at all. That place where you can't see, you can't see. If we had the lights off in here at night, you just can't see and you bump around and there's nothing and you... That is the realm of sin. And we'll do what we want. And there's no darkness in God at all. He's completely light. It's glorious. He's glorious and beautiful and pure and holy. And here comes something very interesting. He starts talking about sin in the church. He says this, if we say that we have fellowship with him, I want you to think in your mind. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? If you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, here's how I know you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. I'd come to you or somebody would come to you and say, hey man, hey, hey lady, anyway, whatever. Hey person, uh, are you going to heaven? And they'd say, well, of course I am. Based on the finished work of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, now he comes to live in me. He is the hope of glory. You'd know. But if, here's what most people do when we say, uh, are you going to go to heaven? They go, um, I don't know. I've done a little bit more good. See, they don't understand the gospel, that person. Might be you right here. But if you've come in to the family of God, listen, you have fellowship with him. And if you say you've come into the family of God, you can give yourself a litmus test right here. If you say that you have fellowship with him, but walk in darkness, here's what the Bible calls you. Wow, a liar. And you don't practice the truth. You even are lying to the people here in the fellowship hall. You're, you're coming, you're putting your hands up, and then 
you know, you're practicing something that's very dark. Now, this doesn't mean, by the way, that you make mistakes. We all are sinners still. We're living in this body, saved by grace, but we do have a, a sin nature that's warring against the flesh, and sometimes we still sin. That's not what this is talking about. This is the one that thumbs the nose at somebody and says, I don't care that I'm a Christian or not, I'll look at porn. <laughs> Nobody will know. Who's going to know? Here it says, if you do something like that or something else, it could be gossip. You're a liar. I'm a liar. And we don't practice the truth. You could even be lying to your, the people in here. Just look how insidious sin is. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We're obeying, we're loving, we're trusting, we're praising, we're admitting, we're being, living life trans, uh, uh, transparently. Yes, I did sin. Lord, help me. We're walking in the light. It's not that you're perfect. It's that you're living according to what the Lord says, right? If you're walking in the light, then you have fellowship with one another. But now your fellowship is restored because you're not lying to each other. The Bible says confess your sins one to another. You're not lying to each other, right? You have fellowship with one another. And the blood of... Listen, somebody, somebody just do this. Do this. Take your Bible and, and do this. Just If you highlight your Bible, highlight this. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Do you know what... Psalm 103 tells us, for those who are trusting in Jesus Christ, he takes our sin as far as the east is from the west. Some commentators, you ever, you ever been out to the ocean and you look over there and you, you just see the horizon? Remember what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? And then you know, the, you always, you know, you get your kids in the car and the family and you go and you just see that thing drop and that little flash, right? So awesome, right? Do you know what that vanishing point is? You know what I'm talking about? The vanishing point? You can't see past it. What some commentators say is it's as far as the east is from the west is past the vanishing point. And then Hebrews tells us, by the blood of Jesus Christ, not only does he take your sins as far as the east is from the west, but he remembers it no more. He remembers it no more. I'm not sure that means he forgets it, but I do know what it means is he doesn't count it against you ever. By the blood of Jesus Christ. He never counts it against you. You know how we do. You've messed up. Yeah, I'll forgive you, but, you know, in two years I'll bring it up again. He, he doesn't count it against you. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son. Do you understand why it's so important to know who God really is and who you are in comparison to God? Because you need and I need, first and foremost, like the person in Mark 2, the blood of Jesus Christ to cover our lives. That way we are able to have fellowship with him and with each other. And we don't lie to one another. We live in transparency. We walk in the light. And the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us from all our sin. Our guilt, yes. He, send, he takes as far as the east is from the west. He's taken away our guilt. Justice has been paid. But sometimes, folks... All of us have been bathed. Our whole body has been bathed in Christ, but sometimes we walk around and we get our feet dirty, don't we? We still sin. 
and we need a cleaning. So he says, if we see that we have no, but if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So now you can start seeing where John is talking to the Gnostics. What John's saying is, whatever you're made up of, your whole being, body, soul, and spirit, it all matters. So you can't just say that you've attained some spiritual plateau and you do whatever you want with your body. It all matters because you're going to, the body matters. You can't separate it, he says. And to say that you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in us. But also listen to this. On another plane, another thought, we don't walk in the light with each other. Look how insidious sin is. Then it spreads and we even deceive ourselves. So we start looking at the pictures on the thing and we say, well, you know, come on. I looked at it, but I didn't think about it. You, you know what I mean? I mean, I wasn't gossiping. I was praying for her. I wasn't spreading it, but the whole church uh, audience with the king people know now about your dirty little secrets. No one does that, but you know what I'm saying. It can spread. And the truth is not in us. Do you see how if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So those who habitually do this stuff, thumb our nose at God, you're deceiving yourself. You you could go to church a hundred years out of a hundred years. But if you're only just learning the words and the history and you're not in fellowship with the Lord and you're deceiving yourself about sin... You're not being truthful with people and yourself. Then he says, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's almost too hard to believe. He says, the, the Bible from stem to stern says we're sinners. Third chapter, murder of a brother. Dysfunction all throughout the Old Testament. The prophets said, All like sheep have gone astray. They've gone their own way. You've gone away from God. You're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I'm going to write that song. The Bible in the New Testament tells us none are righteous. No, not one. We're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful. Look at that. And just. Now. Remember what I said. I know I'm running in circles. I'm doing it on purpose. Maybe not, but trying to. Remember, God has to be completely just. (laughs) Don't get past that you're forgiven. I want you to glory in that. But you're forgiven because how faithful God is, and look, how just God is. Your penalty has been paid If there's no justice and you're running around avoiding the bench warrant, you never can really feel comfortable because you know the bench warrant's out there or the old parking tickets are going to catch up with you because there's judgments been entered against you. You get it? Here, the Bible says your justice, your judgment has been paid. There's a clean slate for you. He being both the just and the justifier, he's just. Hmm. I have to uh, penalize their sin and send my wrath again. He doesn't do it like this. He had it planned out before the foundation of the world. I'm doing that. But I also want to love them. That's what he said. I'll send my son Jesus. 
So now I'm faithful. God is faithful and just, and he can forgive your sins, which Mark 2 says is the number one problem for you and for me. So he can, he can uh, he's free now to uh, give you grace and mercy, right? And if we confess our sins, he's faithful unto us. He forgives our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. You say, wait a second. You've been saying up there that you're a sinner still. Yeah, here, two, two planes, not flying planes, planes in the Bible. Is that good? Planes. On one plane is the positional plane. God declares you not guilty and gives you his righteousness. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21 and Romans 3 and 4. You have imputed, you have in your spiritual bank account, the imputed righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. So if you surrender your life to Christ, you're counting on the finished work of Christ. You are seen as righteousness. When you die here physically, unless the Lord comes back first, he's going to say, come on in, I see that righteousness. But also practically, you still live in a body that wants to do some things sometimes, and so you sin, and so you need to get your feet washed sometimes, so to speak. You get dirty a little bit. So you confess your sins, you keep short accounts with God, and he even can wipe away that, right? You see what I'm saying? In other words, this is saying that you came into the family of God because you were cleansed. I'm never going to leave you in relationship, the God, God says, but sometimes when you get, get dirty, you need to come back to me and confess your sins and I cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You get it? And then he goes on here and he says it. This is the final dagger for people who refuse to repent. Well, you've been lying to the people in the fellowship, John says. If you persist in it, you're lying to yourself and you won't even see it. That's how the insidious sin is. And then he says this, if we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar. And his word is not in us. See how awful sin is? It starts just little. It gets bigger. It's a wider circle. And now we say, you make God a liar and his word is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, you're calling God a liar. Why is that so important then? Because those people who were Gnostics thought they could attain a level of spiritualness in which they would never sin. Oh, by the way, there's some popular teachers on TV that say you shouldn't be sinning if you're a Christian. If you are, there's something wrong with you. You realize this right now. This is happening right now probably on the TV that we own. You could go back home and watch it. That's not what Paul said. Paul said, the things that I don't want to do, man, I do. And the things that I want to do, man, I don't do all the time. He felt this struggle between the flesh and the spirit even until the day he died. Agreed? So you got to watch it. you got to watch it. What do you believe? Here's what you believe. You believe the eyewitness accounts that are put down in the Bible. Does this even matter for me? Oh, it matters for you. You know why it matters for you? Oh, is Mr. and Mrs. Green here? Yeah, Ms. yeah, yeah, who are you? Well, we want to come and talk to you about the Bible. Okay, come on in. What do you want to talk about? 
Well, we have an understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ was a really good prophet, but he wasn't deity. And it's happening all here in the city, all around the world. It's happening. And one thing that John says is that you better be ready when they come to your door. Because God has said that I'm entrusting the gospel to us. Be a person who can rightly divide the word and know who Jesus is correctly so that you'll live correctly. You get it? It's the most important thing you could ever know. Who Jesus is, really. Now, here, I think we're going to come and we're going to worship out of here. Are we? Yeah. Uh, I'm the last to know everything, as you can tell. <laughs> it's because I'm, I, uh, I'm so unorganized. Uh, but here's what I want you to know as they're walking up here, and I want you to just listen. Don't let them bother you by their walking. If there's somebody here that's never surrendered their life to Jesus Christ, you're one of those people that say, yeah, I, you know, I think I'm done more good than more bad. Well, you don't know the gospel. That's okay. I didn't know the gospel for the first 20 years of my life. No one ever told it to me. Or maybe they did and I wasn't listening. But what I want you to do is, as we worship here in song, I want you to come up after... I don't want you to leave. If you're feeling the Lord tug your heart right now, I want you to come up, and I want, you to, I want to talk with you and pray with you. If you're a Christian, hold on here now. If you know you're going to heaven, you have salvation, and you've been walking in darkness, and you know it, you know you're walking in darkness. You don't keep it in anymore. Come and confess it to somebody who won't tell anybody else. So, listen, I know it's 12:13, but the pirates ain't doing so good, guys. <laughs> and you don't need to rush home. If this is you, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, I want you to come. I want you to pray with us. If you're walking in darkness in some way, but you know you've got to get it off your chest, the Lord's convicting you. I want you to come up. Let's do it today. Let's not wait. We don't want to make God a liar, in a sense. No walking in darkness. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this day and for this group of people. And for those in Facebook land or YouTube land or wherever, we thank you, Lord. And uh, we thank you for the technology. Lord, we pray that this, would pan this pandemic would go away. We pray that the virus would be extinguished, Lord. But Lord, in the middle of all that, even if you don't, <laughs> Help us, Lord, to be a light in a hurting and dark world. Lord, I pray that you would tug on the hearts of all of us about something, that many would come and we could pray together.
pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.